Welcome to the Lady Lawyer League podcast. They're a league of lady lawyers in an all-female law firm in Omaha, Nebraska called Hightower Ref Law. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of what it's like to be a lady lawyer and an entrepreneur. Now it's time to talk about the law, share real-life stories about representing clients, and discuss the current events of the week. It's the Lady Lawyer League podcast with Susan Ref and Tracy Hightower-Henny. So today we have Aaron Wetzel here with us. Hello. Hi, Aaron. How's it going? Fabulous. Good. <laughs> it's uh, it's back to school time, and my son has been back to school for four days now. So it's like still hot, like summer, but school started. It's so weird. Are you glad that he's back in school? I am. The summer was, um, he was home alone a lot. And I just didn't love that. So he did some camps, but now he's back at school. So that's that's good. Um, but, you know, when when I was a kid, we went, you know, Labor Day to Memorial Day for school. And now it's so early when they start. Oh, we always started middle of August. And, and I went to a private school. We started a week before the public school. But then we got out earlier in May, too, whereas they were going towards the end of May. But we got out like middle of May. And your kids are like teeny tiny, so they don't go to school. Yeah, school. it's not. It's not really back to school because they're always at daycare. But we we call it school when we're talking to them, and the teachers call it school. But there's a back to school night tonight. <laughs> Fun. Yeah, we had back to school night like a week before school. So what's back to school night like at daycare? Well, because of COVID, they have us just drop the kids off at the door. We can't actually go into the school because they don't want so many people walking in and out of the school. So it's been, I mean, almost a, well, over a year now since we've actually been in the school. They moved to a new room in the meantime, so we've never seen this room. So it's just a way for, I think, the parents to actually see the rooms that their kids are in now and talk to the teachers and then the kids can play outside. And then I guess they're doing some fun things like a book fair and an ice cream truck. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. That's fun. Yeah. So the kids come with you. Yeah, they come with us, but then they have some teachers that are just going to be playing with all the kids outside. Hmm. I don't think when my son was that age, we ever had back to school night for, but maybe it's just a COVID thing that they're doing it. Like they wouldn't normally do that. Yeah, I mean, they didn't do it last year, which they, if they were going to, they probably would have canceled it. And then the year before would have been actually probably after the time my girls started. Hmm. Because they're two, and they would have started end of August, would have been the first time that they were at daycare. So maybe they did it before, and I just don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Those things that happen that we don't always know about with our kids. But also, it's a new daycare, so I think they had only... They probably hadn't had it before I was there because they'd only they had opened the the March before my girls started going and we started going end of August. Oh, sure. so they might not have done it before. Yeah. Well, I hope you have a good time. I'm sure we will. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, for people that don't know, um, in our firm, Aaron and I are the attorneys that do criminal cases, and uh, both of us have a lot of experience in this area. And it's a really interesting area of the law, I think, because while the rules and courtroom decor, decorum and all that stuff is the same, 
as civil cases, like there's there seems to be a lot of unwritten rules and like cultural things that happen in criminal cases, especially misdemeanor cases. Definitely. I mean, you have the the state represented by the county attorney's office who kind of controls a lot of how the case goes down and how it's handled. So a lot of it depends on what that specific office's policies are. So it can really vary from county to county here. And the crazy thing in, in Omaha, in Douglas County, is that we also have the city prosecutor's office, which I think, and maybe you have more experience in this area because you've practiced elsewhere, the Omaha city prosecutor's office is the only like city prosecutor that does criminal cases. Or am I wrong on that? I think it's kind of, I think there are some other counties that have a city prosecutor, if you will, but more for the civil side of stuff that can step in occasionally on criminal cases. I've, so when I was in central Nebraska, I saw it very rarely. Um, one of the cases where I saw it interestingly was, um, the city prosecutor charged the sheriff with violating a city ordinance for having his horses on city streets and city limits. Wow. It was this, it was this big thing. And then he came into the courtroom in his uniform and the judge yelled at him and, and said, don't you dare walk in here as a defendant in your uniform with your gun. And it, oh my gosh, it was, it's small town drama. <laughs> wow. Let's do a whole podcast just on that thing. Okay. okay that'd be fun. Um, but in, in Douglas County, the city prosecutor's office handles the majority of misdemeanor cases, except for domestic violence cases. Right. So they have an arrangement with the county attorney's office, but there's they're both acting as prosecutors and they're representing the state. Right, yeah. Isn't there arrangement that the city prosecutor's office does all of the DUIs and in exchange the county attorney does all the, the domestic violence charges? For the, yeah, I shouldn't say all of them. Most of them, I th- I think, I think the county attorney does all the domestic violence, and that's it. And so. I think kind of the the exception to that is the the child neglect abuse, because the prosecutor's yeah. office will handle those types of cases. Yeah. So I mean, it comes down to it doesn't really matter who's prosecuting you, right? Like you're right. in trouble. <laughs> right. Hello, you know, bad things are happening. So in a criminal case, like most of the time people think, like on TV, right, that someone's getting cuff slapped on them and thrown in the back of a cruiser, but that's not always how cases start. No, not for the misdemeanors. I'd say if you're getting charged with a misdemeanor, it's probably actually rare that you're getting arrested. Yeah, I mean, so people get tickets. Right. You know, even even for really serious crimes, sometimes you're just issued a citation from law enforcement. Right, which looks the exact same as if you're getting a speeding ticket. (laughs) Yeah, it's the same piece of paper, just has different words on it. Exactly. And one thing to tell people, what, what makes something a crime in our world is, are you going to jail or not? Is there a possibility you could go to jail, right? Like, you can get a speeding ticket and we could represent you, but there's really no, there's absolutely no way you're gonna go to jail on a speeding ticket or running a red light or something like that. Right. So in our mind, those, those are called infractions and they're like lesser violations of the law, basically. Right, I mean, in Nebraska, 
if you're not facing any potential jail time, you're not entitled to an attorney. Right. Um, so if you want an attorney, you have to hire your own. If there's potential jail time and you can't afford an attorney and you meet the the criteria regarding your finances um, at the the levels that are determined by the state, then the judge can appoint an attorney to represent you for free. And I think it's really interesting. Like, I I mean, I have seen paper citations written for very serious crimes, and and then I've seen people get arrested for you know, smaller crimes, you know, they're jailable, but you know, like for example, I've seen someone arrested for reckless driving. And then I've seen someone receive a paper citation for a domestic assault. Like it just doesn't, I don't know if, if each law enforcement group has their own kind of guidelines, if it's officer specific, you know, in that moment, like they have discretion, I, I just don't know. I think sometimes, in some of my cases, it seems to come down to how cooperative the person is. For sure. If the person is nice and respectful to the police and says that they will accept the citation, then they give them the citation. But if they refuse to accept it, then they have to arrest them. So the moral of that story is just be respectful. You're not admitting anything if you accept the citation. You're just acknowledging that they're saying they're charging you with this and that you agree that you should come to that court date. And there's actually a crime in Nebraska that's not jailable, but it's called failure to sign a citation. Really? Yes, I've actually had a few clients charged with this on top of their like more serious charges. And I think it's a class four, so it's so only- no jail time. Yeah, you can only get a fine. And and it it's like, the cop has said numerous times to this person, like, just sign this, please. All you're doing by signing it is saying you're going to show up at this court date that I wrote on the paper. And, you know, usually the person is just highly uncooperative in general. Sometimes they're under the influence. So there's there's some reasons why people aren't signing the citation. But it's like, gosh, on top of everything else you have, now you're getting yourself in more trouble, basically. Right. Yeah, just just sign it. You're not admitting anything by signing it. And then there's, you know, we hear these things. There's there's like these rumors that, uh, like the Omaha Police Department will always arrest if it's a certain crime, um, or the Sheriff's Department will always arrest. You know, like right now, I think we've been hearing a lot that like someone is always going to get arrested if there's a domestic violence call, but then, you know, third offense DUIs are not getting arrested. <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's technically correct. I mean, I've, I've had situations where there's a, a fight, a domestic fight, and it turns out that nobody gets arrested. I think people think if there's a fight, a domestic fight, that the cops come and say, well, we have to arrest one of you, and that's not accurate. So after a person either gets a citation or they get arrested in a criminal case, they, there's a court hearing. Right. And if you're arrested in a misdemeanor, the first court hearing the bond setting. Is, is a bond setting, yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you have a citation, your first appearance isn't gonna be till you have an arraignment. Right, and that can be months after you get the citation. 
Right. And this is where, like, I think we've really seen COVID affect case progressions. I mean, the, the police are putting, you know, they can put any court date they want on that ticket, right? Right. <laughs> Which is interesting um, that they get they get to pick. Uh, for whatever reason, the cops really like to put Mondays and Tuesdays on also, I feel like. Yes, I've noticed that. <laughs> so, like, there's tons of arraignments on Mondays and Tuesdays, and it kind of tapers off as the week goes on. And I don't know why they do that, but they do. Do you think maybe they're told to do Mondays, Tuesdays? I, I have no idea. I, I don't know, but so that what that first court appearance is called an arraignment, and I always tell clients, you know, at that that hearing, the judge is going to formally tell you what all your charges are. They're going to tell you, you know, you've been charged with this, and here's the penalties for that. And you've been charged if they have more than one count, they'll tell them what the penalties for each count are. And they also tell you what your rights are throughout the case, but they do that at other hearings too. They do a, a generic rights advisory, they call it, at the start, uh, because these hearings are all what we call cattle call, right? It's a whole bunch of cases set for the same time. You have maybe 20, some 30 people in the room that all have hearings, and so the judge says, if you have a court hearing today, listen up. You have to listen to what I have to say, and then goes through all of your criminal rights. I think that was one of the things that I was most, you know, like kind of shocked about when I started practicing criminal law was the the group rights advisory. Right. Because those courtrooms are kind of chaotic, right? There's people coming and going. People show up late. I mean, they're supposed to be there at a certain time, but people walk in and out. Lawyers are walking in and out. Lawyers are talking to each other. There's, you know, sheriff and security in the courtroom. They're bringing in people who are coming from the jail. It's like a lot of commotion, and the judges are saying, here's what all your rights are. Yeah. And half the people in the room aren't listening, I, I, I'm sure. I'm sure they're not. But, I mean, they individually ask the person, were you here when I advised of the rights? Did you understand them? Do you have any questions? And, and it always stinks to be that lawyer that's like, uh, my client was late and missed that. Right. But, I mean, I've seen lawyers who just are like, just tell them you heard it, you know? Yeah. So so the judge tells them what their charges are, what the penalties for those charges are, what their rights are, um, asks if they heard their rights. We hope that people heard and understood their rights. And then, and then the judge says, well, you know, how do you want to plead to this charge? Right? I mean, I right. think that's the next thing that happens. Yeah. And you, I mean, there's several options, right? There's the most common options, not guilty, guilty, no contest, which no contest is essentially saying, I'm not going to admit that I did this, but I more or less agree that the state has the evidence to convict me of it. It's not no contents. <laughs> um, people say that and, uh, you know, I mean, I suppose people can be nervous and they just misspeak, but it, the funniest case I ever heard was someone was pleading to open container and they pled no contents and the judge found them guilty and they said why are you finding me guilty they didn't have an attorney and they said why are you finding me guilty there was no contents in the bottle it was empty oh my and gosh. the judge was like wait i thought you pled no contest and you just misspoke and the person said there was nothing in the bottle it was empty so i can't you can't charge me with open container 
because I was carrying an empty bottle of liquor or whatever it was. <laughs> so that was hilarious. And uh, everyone thought the person just didn't know, like it was no contest instead of contents. But they were really asserting that was their defense. There's no contents of alcohol. I'd be curious to know how that case turned out. Uh, I think the judge said, I'm going to enter, I'm going to assume you want to plead not guilty and have a trial. <laughs> the person was like, well, yeah. <laughs> So that in that case, that person like really thought that first court appearance was their trial. Right. But it wasn't. It was, you know, just it's like a preliminary um, type of a hearing where pre-trial things happen, not there's no trial. You, even if someone walked in that day and totally ready for trial, the judge wouldn't have their trial that day. Oh, no. They set off special trial dates for that. They're not going to do that when everybody's there for their arraignment hearing. So... What happens if someone pleads not guilty that day at that first appearance? So essentially that's all that happens that day, right? You're advised of your rights, you're advised of what you're charged with, you plead not guilty, and then the judge will set your case out for typically a pretrial hearing. Sometimes it can get set for a trial right away. And then your attorney has the ability to get what we call discovery. And discovery is police reports, videos, photos, reports, documents, anything that the state has related to the case. So what at that arraignment too, I mean, people often will plead guilty right away too. Right. You know, they just walk in and they're like, yeah, I was, uh, I, I was driving under the influence. And then the judge, this is what I tell people too, if you're gonna plead guilty at that first hearing, you better be ready to be sentenced immediately. Because right. that's what happens right after a guilty finding is you're sentenced. So if they weren't prepared to go to jail, sometimes that happens and people are often shocked that they get put in handcuffs at right. that hearing because they've pled guilty. I'd say more often than not, you do get sentenced on the same date that you plead. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think having an attorney to kind of walk you through some of this stuff that is, I mean, it's it's... Obviously, it makes sense that once you are found guilty or plead guilty, you're sentenced. But sometimes people don't think about that. They don't think beyond the whether they're guilty or not. Right. And there's a lot of things that even if someone is guilty for sentencing that we can really help on to mitigate the case and make it a lot easier on our clients. Right. There's things that we can help you do steps you can take to make it you know more likely that you would get probation instead of jail time maybe have a discussion with the prosecutor so that you get a fine you know just different things that we can do so our our takeaway about that arraignment is you know a, you you can be incarcerated after your arraignment if things go all the way to sentencing so it's important to know what your rights are and to have a good attorney with you at that hearing. Right. And so so if you get sentenced and you plead guilty at that, or if you plead guilty and you get sentenced at that first hearing, like it's done, right? And then yeah, the case is over. Yeah. But if you, like you said, if, if you're pleading not guilty, then it gets set for trial and then the attorneys start getting all the information about the case. Right. And then we either use that to prepare for the trial or we use that to negotiate a plea deal with the prosecutor. And I think I I heard a statistic somewhere that it was like in misdemeanor cases in our area, like 90 plus percentage of them, you know, plead 
I believe that. I mean, it's very rare that I feel like I walk into a trial courtroom and there's actually a trial going on. <laughs> right. Even if a case gets set for trial, more often than not, you're going to plead at that trial date. And I think, you know, I think people plea because they're scared. You know, like they don't, they're, they're faced with a choice of a plea that is something very... Um, predictable maybe versus a trial that's unpredictable and they just don't want to take any chances. Right. I think some people are worried also that if they take it to trial, they're going to get what defense attorneys call the trial tax. Yes. Being that the judge and the prosecutor are going to be mad that they wasted their time and made them do this trial and therefore they're going to get a harsher penalty than if they entered a plea. Right. Which is not supposed to happen. Whether or not that does happen, you know, the the judges who are handing down the sentence have their own personal biases and they might not even consciously know that they're doing it. Yeah. Uh, trial tax, in my experience, is a very real thing, especially in misdemeanors. Um, be, and I, I think some of the thing that goes into it in the judge's head, too, is the caseloads are so high and if you have a trial, the trials are also cattle call, right? When, unless it's a jury trial, if it's, you know, a run of the mill misdemeanor case, it's a cattle call trial. So that judge walks in that courtroom and they may have 15 to 30 cases, which are all set for trial. And if a few of them start having trials and they're all set at the same time and then interspersed and there's a couple people taking pleas, that makes for a very, very long time in the courtroom right the other thing that can happen too is if there's a trial and the judge hears more facts than they would have otherwise with a plea deal that might make them want to sentence that person to additional time than they would have otherwise because they wouldn't have heard those specific yeah. facts of the case yeah like in an assault case if it's uh you know a situation where maybe someone you know, punches somebody one time in the shoulder versus like multiple punches to someone's face where they end up, you know, with blood right. everywhere. I mean, like, yeah, they're both assaults. They're both bad. They're both resulted in someone being injured. But one fact pattern might not be as bad to the judge. And they're like, you know, that's a lot worse than than, you know, a simple punch in a shoulder or something like that. Right. Um, plea negotiations, though, I like I. I think plea negotiations are kind of interesting and, and people, our clients don't ever know what we're talking about. You know, they, right. like they're not there usually right. when we're talking about pleas. Um, and, you know, certain prosecutors have certain thoughts like, you know, if you're going to plead to this charge, I always recommend a $100 fine. I always recommend one day in jail or whatever they They might have some like standards for their pleas. Right. And I think some of it, too, is stuff that we as defense attorneys might not know. Like there might be a policy in their office. And all they say to us is, you know, if we we come back at them and we say, well, what if what if this person would plead to disorderly conduct instead of the assault? And they say, I can't do that. You always wonder, what do they mean by I can't do that? Do they mean I personally don't want to do that? I can't do that because a. and a supervisor attorney told me I can't do that or I can't do that because the head prosecutor in our office has a policy that we don't ever do that. You know, it's, sometimes it's hard to know. 
So there's a couple parts to a plea negotiation. There's a case where there's multiple counts of things, right? Like maybe someone has five counts. One part of a plea negotiation might be dismissing, you know, several counts and just pleading to one. Right. Um, another part of a plea negotiation would be pleading to a less serious charge. So like you said, an right. assault pleading down to a disorderly conduct. Right. And then there's like sentencing recommendations that are part of plea negotiations too. Right, and you can either have that as part of the plea offer that you've agreed this is gonna be the sentence or you don't agree on a sentence, you're only agreeing on the charges and it's up to the judge what the sentence is gonna be. So I was having a conversation the other day with some attorneys and um, a judge, one judge, about whether or not plea negotiations should be followed, you know, like 100%. And obviously the judge doesn't, ha they have discretion. They do not ever have to follow a plea uh, plea negotiation like as far as what a sentence would be. Right. So if the prosecutor says, you know, the defendant is gonna plead guilty to the assault and I'm gonna recommend one day in jail. You know, the, the judge could say, well, you know, I'm gonna give him more time than that. Yeah, I'm gonna give him 10 days or whatever. Yeah, and this, this judge said, um, you know, he really took plea negotiations more as a recommendation. And the prosecutors, the prosecutors really got upset because they, they, they said, you know, there's reasons we offer plea deals and it's not just to like, you know, move the case through. I mean, that's a little bit of it, but they said, really, like, we know our case. And if we have weaknesses, we have to acknowledge those and still, you know, do what we can to represent the state and the victims and all of that. But they said, you know, it. there's a reason that we're making those recommendations to you because we know so much more about the case than you'll ever know. Right. And for you to just kind of say, like, eh, I just kind of look at it as a recommendation that, the, you know, and as defense attorneys, we're used to no one ever listening to what we say anyway. Right, <laughs> yeah. And the judges just kind of, you know, because if, if, we're, if we're battling at sentencing, you know, obviously the defense attorney is gonna ask for lower fines, lesser jail time, and the state is gonna be arguing for higher fines and higher jail time. And a lot of times it falls towards the, the prosecutor's side. Usually. <laughs> but to hear this, the prosecutors get pretty upset and say, you know, to this judge, like, we, we really want you to follow our, our recommendations and there's good reason behind them. And this, that was really an interesting conversation. I've rarely seen a judge not follow the recommended sentence that's part of the plea deal. I feel like sometimes it happens when the facts are pretty bad and the reason we are pleading, you know, coming to a plea deal with the prosecutor is because maybe there's some technicality in their case that they can't overcome. Right. Um, but it's a technicality in that a conviction would still come, but not necessarily, you know, especially when someone's pleading down. Right. Um, and then the judge finds out that, like, the person that got punched, like, lost all their teeth or something like that. <laughs> They're like, what? You're recommending a $100 fine? And the prosecutor's like, well, yeah, here's why. Have you seen it in county court with the misdemeanors as much where the judge doesn't follow the recommendation? I feel yes. like it's... Really? In my experience, it's com felony courtrooms. The judges 
I mean, we, you're much less likely to get a sentencing recommendation in a felony. But True. in county court, and, and I could probably tell you the five judges who I just, I have no faith that they will follow the plea agreement. Wait, I tell, mean, they do it, but. Tell me later. Yeah, I'll tell you later. <laughs> and now I know another one because he was part of this conversation that we had the other day. Oh, yeah, I need to know. <laughs> yeah. So something that people don't know also is if you have a trial in a misdemeanor, you're most likely having a trial just to a judge. Right, which is called a bench trial. There's only certain levels of misdemeanors that trigger your right to a jury trial. Right, the the highest level, the class one misdemeanor, that's the only type of case that you get a jury trial on. You don't get them on the, you know, the misdemeanors within the city municipal code. Uh, you don't get them on the class two, three, four. It's only class one, and it's not what you think of when you think of the the trials that are, you know, blasted all over the media. Right. It's only six jurors. Yeah. For a misdemeanor, it's six people. Right. And one, I think one alternate, one or two, I think one, I don't know. It's probably up to the specific judge. But the, yeah, so you still have all the same rights whether it's a bench trial or a jury trial in the you know whoever's finding you guilty or not guilty has to find you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt so whether that's the judge or the jury and reasonable doubt is kind of hard to explain to people and i just say right. you know reasonable meaning you know like would most people come to an agreement that that was reasonable yes and then, you know, doubt, like, do you have any, if you even have a teeny tiny little doubt that this person did it, like, that's reasonable doubt. Since we're lawyers, there's lots of arguments in every state about what that phrase means. Right. And it's been litigated and appealed and the Supreme Courts or whatever the equivalent in other states are called, because not every state calls it the Supreme Court. Yeah, some is superior and... District and some, yeah. yeah. So... The, there's definitions that are set out and you can even try to make arguments to the judge about what jury instruction you want them to give to the jurors about how you define this. Right. It's, it's hard to define. I it think is. it's even when it's defined, it's, it's subject to interpretation. I think the, some of the other standards are easier to define like a preponderance of the evidence, right? 51% versus 49%. That's so much easier to, explain <laughs> right and and so i think sometimes people think in a in a case that 51 percent of the jurors need to find that you're guilty no and that's not how that works either here that's not how that yeah. works in, in nebraska it has to be unanimous so all the jurors have to agree right there are some other states where i don't think it has to be unanimous i think there's like two states where it doesn't have to be it's like 10 of the 12 or whatever i'm really glad we're not in those states right so, you know, as defense attorneys, we really only have to convince one person on the jury that our client is not guilty. Right. Um, so, and that's an interesting thing that people, a lot of people don't know about. If you have a jury trial, and let's say it's six jurors, and two say not guilty and four say guilty, it's not, you don't get a not guilty in that case. No, it, not guilty also has to be unanimous. Yes. If there's not unanimous guilty or unanimous not guilty, it's a mistrial. 
Yes. Which means it's done for that day, and then the state decides whether or not they want to pursue the case again and try another trial. So I had a felony, a felony jury trial, um, which is 12 jurors, and one juror said not guilty, and oh. all the other jurors said guilty. So it came out as a mistrial. And the, you know, the lingo for that is they call it a hung jury, meaning they couldn't come to a unanimous decision. Right. And yeah, lots of different things can happen. In that case, my client ended up getting a plea offer for a misdemeanor from a felony. Um, That's a win. Yeah, I I think so. It was a good sentencing recommendation, too. It wasn't jail time. So, um, you know, and and then at a bench trial, you know, it's interesting because it's just the judge. So it's really only one person. You have, you have to convince that one person, but it's the judge. Right. I like to do bench trials when it's more of a, like a legal definition issue with the case. Right. Not necessarily a factual, did this person do it? Did they not do it? Right. Because I just think the judges are very critical of, does this meet the legal definition? Well, and if you're if you're arguing the law a lot, you might have to really educate the jury about what the law is and then tell them how your client didn't meet it. Whereas if right. you're with a judge, you just make that assumption they already understand right. that first part. Yeah, I think the other time it's good to have a bench trial is if it's a highly emotional case. You know, maybe yeah. the facts are emotional or they make your client look like a very bad person and you're worried that some jurors might just immediately assume they're guilty because the case just sounds so terrible. Right. They must have done it, you know. Right. Yeah. So trials in general can just be really emotional anyway. Oh, yeah. But there's a lot at stake. And that's kind of, I think, a good place to kind of um, end on with criminal cases. You know, the cases we take, there's always always a possibility someone could go to jail yeah and there's so many moving parts and and criminal cases move pretty fast they do so there's not a lot of sitting around waiting things can happen on the fly and it it really helps to have attorneys who are experienced know the judges know the prosecutors kind of know some of those unwritten rules about how things can happen in 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 the case Right, and we can help with that. Absolutely. We're gonna answer a few questions that we've got about criminal cases and court in general um, next, but if you, as a listener, want to submit a question, you can submit it on our Facebook page at uh, The Lady Lawyer League or on our Instagram at The Lady Lawyer League, and we will try to do this again uh, in the future where we can answer a couple more questions. Our first question is, can someone get jail time if they get a speeding ticket and then they ignore it, they never pay a fine, they never do anything about it? In a roundabout way, not directly from not paying that speeding ticket, right? So usually there's like a due date on the citation that you pay the the fine by a due date. And if you don't pay that fine by that due date... You have to go to court. You have to, to contest go to court. It. And... If you do nothing for a certain amount of time, then it gets referred to the DMV. So, yeah. so basically, on a speeding ticket, it says go to, go to this website, pay this fine. 
If you don't want to pay the fine, show up at this court date to contest it. But if you don't show up to contest it for speeding tickets, then you're essentially deemed to have admitted. Right. So then you have to owe the fine. Right. So, so if you don't pay the fine, the court sends notice to the DMV that you haven't paid the fine, and the DMV can suspend your license. And driving, when your license is suspended, is a misdemeanor that does carry jail time. Correct. So... 10 steps down the road, you could end up in jail from a fact pattern that was started with a speeding ticket. But if you never drove again and your license is suspended, you're, you're, you know, you're not actually violating the law. Right. So if you find out that this situation happened to you and your license was suspended as a result, you can go to the DMV website, you enter your information, your li- either your social security number or your driver's license number, birth date, name, and it tells you what you have to do to clear that up. So it'll right. say, pay the fine associated with this court case. Right. You go pay that fine. Once you pay the fine, the court tells them that you paid it, and then you have to pay, like a, I think it's like a $15 reinstatement fee. Yeah, so you pay, then you pay basically, you know, the fee to the DMV for all of their trouble suspending your license. <laughs> exactly. And uh, then they reinstate your license. Um, but that is a mess. It is. It is. It isn't. I mean, sometimes people say, well, I didn't I didn't even know I was suspended. Well, but, you, you know, know, you had a you should have known you had to find at some point in time that needed to be paid. Yeah. So the moral of the story is, if you get a ticket that is just a fine, either pay that fine. Or take the traffic class if you're eligible. Yeah. Or go to the court hearing that's yes. listed on there and try One to deal with things. it that way. Don't ignore tickets. Right. Our second question is, does the time of day of your hearing affect the mood of the judge and, and then adversely or better have an effect on your case? You know, so this is really interesting because our court system in in Omaha is set up very stringently with misdemeanor cases that there's only certain times there's court and there's so many cases called in at the same time that the judge doesn't generally set their own misdemeanor court time. Right. And so there's nine o'clock court and there's one thirty court and then there's a few little exceptions to that here and there. But um, you can have court at nine o'clock, but not actually get in front of that judge until like 11 or 1130, depending on how many cases are in there and how long things take. Right. And then they've been on the bench for two hours and they're grumpy yeah. and hungry because lunch is coming up. So, you know, I, I tend to think most of our judges have a pretty even temperament Meaning, whatever they started with is what they're finishing with. So if they if they're just kind of ornery people in general, you know, that's who they're going to be. I don't I don't I don't see judges in that those couple hours getting worse. Um, now sometimes a judge because usually there's one prosecutor in the courtroom, right? A judge will start to get short with that prosecutor if they feel that they're not moving things along fast enough or if they're doing a lot of things that the judge views unreasonable or things like that. I had a case once. It wasn't a criminal case. It was a protection order. And it was set for 11 o'clock, but it was with a county court judge. 
uh, because even though protection orders are filed in district court, either a county court or district court judge can hear the case. And this judge is kind of known for being a little ornery, as you said. Uh, <laughs> and he he looked at us, and we started late. Well, first he he said, "I don't I don't think we need to be here. I think between the attorneys, you you can work this out. I'm going to leave, and I'm going to let you talk, and I hope it's worked out by the time I get back." Oh my gosh! So he leaves, and we tried to work it out, and our clients could not come to an agreement. So he came back in and it was about 11.30. And he said, okay, we're gonna have the hearing then. I don't know, I guess we'll just do this hearing. I was planning on watching Sweet Home Alabama while I (laughs) ate my lunch, but I guess I won't do that now. And we all kind of looked at each other like, that's what you do during your lunch break? You watch Reese Witherspoon movies? That that is hilarious. I mean, I could see like if there was a big game on or the Olympics or something that's just like only comes up every once in a while that right. you really want to go watch when it's live. But Sweet Home Alabama. I mean, you could I think probably, that's a cute movie. But. It is. You could probably find it on TV at least once a month. You could probably find it on Netflix. I feel like that's not the kind of movie you like plan to watch. You just kind of find it. And you're like, oh, it's on. Right. I'll just watch this. Yeah. Um, funny, I think, so in domestic cases, like divorces and, and stuff, there was a while there where I think it was the Sarpy County judges were setting a lot of their trials for Fridays, specifically like Friday afternoons. Oh, gosh. And it's like, uh, do you want to be sitting there hearing complex evidence about cases on a Friday afternoon? Ugh. Even as an attorney, when those hearings get set, because there's one judge here that sometimes will set like a four o'clock hearing, and I'm like, who wants to go to a four o'clock hearing? I know. I th- I think the and I think a little bit of the motivation for those judges of setting Friday hearings trials is that if you end up settling and they don't have it, then they have a free Friday, right? Or maybe they think it encourages people to settle because they don't want to be in trial on a Friday. Yeah. So. It stinks if you get stuck having your trial that day, but if you don't, maybe everyone's winning because they have that time free then on <laughs> right. the calendar. Right. So our third question is, how much does it influence the judge? I'm, like, how much does what the person who's appearing in front of the judge, what they're wearing, affect or influence the judge? So, like, if you're charged with a crime, what should you wear to court? I think it can influence it if you're not showing up in something that's appropriate. I don't think you need to get totally dressed up. Like you don't need to be in a full suit and tie. You certainly can wear that if you want. I rarely see anybody, especially in county court, wearing that. Yeah. But I've seen a lot of people wearing some really inappropriate things that, and, and sometimes it can lead to the judge chewing that person out and telling them to leave the courtroom for one reason or another. Yeah, I, I like there's, just being too casual but then there's being inappropriate right so the the one that I think you see the most often is either the sheriff's deputy or the judge yelling at somebody to take off their hat yes to take off sunglasses yes pull your pants up yes um I've heard of cases where a judge has told the person they need to go to the bathroom and turn their shirt inside out because their shirt said something inappropriate or had an inappropriate picture I haven't seen any judge do that, but I think that's a, sol- a solution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
The you, best is the people who are there for alcohol-related offenses that have alcohol t-shirt on, or marijuana-related offenses that have pot leaves on their t-shirts, because yes. that's very common. In in the midst of COVID, like right at the start, <laughs> there were people that were legitimately showing up in their pajamas, or or it, stuff that bordered on a sweatpants yeah. outfit pajamas. Yeah. It was, it, it, I don't know, I feel like it was that like first month or two was just something else as far as what people were showing up to court in. So I had a, when I was in law school, I did the legal clinic at Creighton and we represented people who couldn't afford attorneys. And our professor told us that she was doing a trial and her client said, well, what should I wear to court? And the professor's response was, Wear what you would wear to church. So like, yeah, maybe you don't wear your best suit, right? but you're wearing something that's a little dressier than what you would wear on your day-to-day life. So she gets to court and her client is wearing a choir robe. Because <laughs> that's what she wore to church because she was in the choir. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Yeah, that was funny. And, and funny, I think the next step was underneath was not appropriate for court. I mean, she had clothes on, but they were like shorts and a tank top because I guess the choir robe's really hot. <laughs> yes, I could see that being somebody who was in choir, but we still wore nice stuff underneath. But I, I have seen people wearing what you described underneath. I oh, recently yeah. saw somebody in very short workout type shorts and a crop top. Yep. The... The amount of skin that starts to show in the summer in court is pretty high. I mean, a lot higher than I ever would have thought. Yeah. And I wonder if someone is trying to maybe appeal to the judge in that way. I think some people just don't realize it's inappropriate. I think it's what they would wear for their everyday wear. Yes. And so it's just another stop in their day. I'm going into court in the morning and then I'm going (laughs) to go to lunch with my friend. I don't know. But yeah, you should. And not, this is this is interesting. Not your choir row, but wear what she would wear to church. <laughs> Aaron and I both don't show a lot of skin on no. a regular basis, so for us, we're probably more <laughs> aware of when someone's dressed in, you know, with too much showing. Yeah, I didn't even wear stuff like that. Like when I was in college and had a nice body to show it. <laughs> yeah. I didn't either. Uh, yeah. Certainly not happening now that I've had twins. <laughs> Another f- interesting story is I had court on a day when there was a blizzard. And it was one of those mornings where it was like blizzarding, like right when everyone was driving to work and driving to it was nine o'clock court. And I remember on this day. It was so bad and my husband's work closed and he had four wheel drive. So he drove me to the courthouse and I got there like five minutes before nine o'clock and I walk in and my client walked in and he this was when I was a public defender. So my client was considered indigent and he was wearing like coveralls, snow boots and he had a stocking cap on and he was wet and he said, I made it. I made like he was so proud of himself. He, I made it to court. Oh, he walked. He walked. Oh my gosh! And we were standing there talking about his case, and we, I think it was all worked out and everything, and it wasn't going to be that big of a deal. But the prosecutor walked in, and immediately chastised my client for wearing his 
stocking cap. And he said, and court hadn't started. The judge wasn't in the courtroom. There was like five people in the courtroom. And he said like, you know, take off your hat. This is a court of law. What are you, don't be so disrespectful. And I was like, oh my gosh. You know how many people aren't even gonna show up today? Right. And this guy is here. And clearly you could tell he'd been outside for a while. Right. And so that was just one of those moments where I was like, you know, we're all just people here. Let's just get through this. I know. I even struggle with that sometimes in the winter where you're having to walk outside in the snow. And you're like, okay, so I want to wear my boots because I don't want to wear my heels or my flats because yes. I'm going to get super wet feet covered in snow. But then you're like, okay, so do I carry my heels with me and then... <laughs> change in the courthouse and then carry my boots around and then it's always awkward too when you're the private defense attorney coming to the courtroom the public defenders and the prosecutors have an office there and then we're coming in in like our huge like winter coats yes (laughs) yes and there's nowhere to put your coat no and the courtrooms are like a hundred degrees i feel like all year round yes i would say a, a, a a trick is park in that public parking garage at the corner of 19th and Harney and take the elevator or the stairs down to the bottom floor and there's now the tunnel that is fully operational. It was shut down for a while during COVID that you can walk through so you can leave your coat and your boots or whatever in your car in the parking garage, walk through that tunnel and never have to go outside. Yeah, I think that that's a great idea. Um, Or sometimes I stash my coat if I have a bunch of court hearings with like a bailiff that I like in their jury room. Oh. That's kind of nice. They don't care. That's a great idea. Yeah. Moral of the story is uh, ask your lawyer what to wear to court, probably, right? And don't be so literal. <laughs> like yeah. at the choir robe. <laughs> yeah, don't wear the choir robe. I, you know, but that's better than a tube towel. Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> I think they just went ahead with the hearing. I don't think it was any big deal. <laughs> If you have any questions you would like us to answer on the podcast, please submit those on Facebook or Instagram at Lady Lawyer League. That's where you can find us. So thanks for listening to our podcast today about criminal cases. Hopefully no one ever needs this information. It's just helpful to know. But if you do need the information, give us a call. See you later. Thank you for listening to the Lady Lawyer League podcast and be sure to like and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. If you would like to learn more about our firm, Hightower Ref Law, please visit our website at hrlawomaha.com. We'll see you next week.